Every week, journalists at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for people in North Central Florida and beyond. You know, it's sad to think that there's someone that did so much here whose story is like all but forgotten by people who are getting older and older every day. There's nothing that could have been done to change the outcome of anencephaly, but what's at question here is the care she received as an incarcerated pregnant woman and the care the other pregnant women are also receiving. So for 2020, there was 3,034 opioid caused deaths, which is a 51% increase from 2019. This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'll look at some of the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write the stories. I'm your host today, Kristen Moorhead. Let's get into the stories from this week. The Cotton Club and Sarah's Restaurant were two influential centers of black music and culture in 1950s Gainesville. Yet, chances are, you probably know little of the business owner who ran them, Sarah McKnight. McKnight died in the 1980s, and her businesses are long closed. The former Cotton Club was preserved as a museum and cultural center, but the remnants of her restaurant and home are lost. But despite much of her achievements being lost to time, some community members today are trying to keep her legacy alive. Producer Melissa Fato spoke with WUFT reporter Peyton Titus about Sarah and this piece of Gainesville's black history. She begins by explaining what is known about McKnight's life. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot out there about Sarah McKnight the person. And that's why I wanted to write this story, because, you know, it's sad to think that there's someone that did so much here whose story is like all but forgotten by people who are getting older and older every day um, and, and her history would go with them. And so I think it was important to write this story. She was born in Gainesville. She lived in the Porter's neighborhood. She was married to a man named Charles McKnight. They had four children together here in Gainesville. I believe two of them are still living. She was a musician herself. I'm not sure what instrument she played. She, she was involved in a United Methodist Church here in town. Everyone says she's beautiful, a beautiful woman, which you can see the photo in the story, very friendly, welcomed a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds. You mentioned in your reporting that despite her influence, she was very rarely mentioned in the Gainesville Sun or the um, Alligator, and yet she's kind of a living memory today. So tell me about some of the some of the people that you spoke with that were able to tell you about Sarah McKnight and her businesses. Yeah, so I spoke with Vivian Filer. She didn't know Sarah McKnight very well, but her mom used to go to Sarah McKnight's businesses a whole lot, and um, they would hang out together. And so she really looked up to McKnight and everything that she did. And then uh, former city commissioner Gigi Simmons also thinks that she was like a really influential woman in the community. And she said that she takes inspiration from her, you know, and, and that kind of inspired her involvement in the community as well. Um, Ruby Williams is a woman that I interviewed. She's 85 years old. Um, she was going to the Cotton Club when she was like 16. And she, she told me now that she's older, she's like, I had no business being in there. But um, she went and she loved it. And before she was an actual patron of the Cotton Club, um, Sarah McKnight would invite her and other children like in the neighborhood to the Cotton Club building 
which in a previous life was a theater for African-American people in Gainesville. And she would pull down the screen and they would watch Tom and Jerry and the Three Stooges. And uh, she would make popcorn and give them soda on Saturday mornings when they finished their chores. And that's not a detail that made it into the story, but it speaks to her character and her involvement here in Gainesville. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about the time period in which she operated um, these clubs. Both places were opened in, in the nineteen very early 1950s. Um, the Cotton Club closed after just a few years of operation. There's a kind of a rumor, a, a substantiated rumor going around uh, that's been going around obviously for, for decades at this point, but that the club's license wasn't renewed because she had white University of Florida students that would come in to listen to some of the acts that she was able to bring here to Gainesville um, before the city was integrated. And so there's there's a theory that that business was forced to shut down because the city didn't appreciate the fact that that was happening at that time. Um, and then Sarah's Restaurant on the other side of town uh, was open through about the mid-1970s, but still very turbulent time periods in terms of you know the civil rights movement, segregation, all these other things. So bo- both of these restaurants, club restaurant, um, were prominent stops on the Chitlin Circuit, which is a circuit of Black-owned businesses where it was safe for Black artists to perform during their segregation. If I were to go back in time to the 1950s and I were to walk into the Cotton Club, um, you know, what would I see? Who would I see there? What kind of music would be playing? You know, bring me into that space. Yeah, so the Cotton Club is like a really big, the building's still standing. It's a, it's a museum and cultural center now. Um, very large kind of dance hall type of vibe where you have a dance floor in the middle, you have a stage up in the back here, round tables on the sides of the dance floor so you could sit and watch people dance or you could dance. And um, the kind of acts that were brought in were mostly like jazz, R&B, some like kind of headliner people. And, and when they went there, they these folks weren't quite famous yet as they are now or weren't known as such like icons in the music industry at that point but like bb king was there bo diddley who's from gainesville was there um ray charles was there duke ellington was there ella fitzgerald was there i mean to name a few like that that's a crazy list all in itself but like the story that i wrote starts off with bb king's car broke down in sarah mcknight's yard when he came to perform at her club and you when you think like music icon you don't think can't even get his car to start to get to the gig that he has in Gainesville, Florida. You know what I mean? So, and and they stayed, oftentimes they stayed in her home because there weren't a lot of, you know, hotel options for black patrons at the time. So she, after the performances, she would bring them back to her house. She would cook for them and then send them back on the road. And something else that, that is interesting is that not only does it seem like McKnight's businesses were a center of black culture in Gainesville, of course, very important to the black community. But you mentioned that white students would often also go to these establishments. So in a time of segregation, maybe a rare spot in Gainesville where there was interaction between black and white people. Yeah. And I asked a few people that I interviewed about that because I was curious, you know, like how adding to her influence here in the community like were her businesses kind of a precursor to Gainesville integrating 
Um, and I got I got some mixed responses back from that. So former city commissioner Gigi Simmons took that as a sign of McKnight's welcoming nature and the fact that she was just such a strong, powerful woman that she was able to set aside all the heartache that she was dealing with living during that time period and just bring in anybody who wanted to listen to the music and enjoy themselves and have a good time. Whereas when I talked to Vivian Filer, you know, she said that, yeah, white white students and white people would come to the club, but that doesn't necessarily have a deeper meaning because, you know, white people are used to invading black spaces. Um, and just because you're a white person that enjoys black music or like black environments or clubs or whatever, it does not mean that you, you know, look at people that occupy those spaces in any kind of different way than you did before you stepped in there. So the Cotton Club kind of has a current iteration today, but Sarah's restaurant, you know, what became its fate? Is there anything left of it today? I mean, the building's no longer standing. Um, I put in the address in my GPS, drove there like two or three times just to make sure that it was actually no longer standing, Um, which is kind of sad because a lot of businesses on Fifth Avenue that black business owners had in the area are no longer standing. And that used to be, you know, the, the Gainesville Sun called it at one point epicenter of black culture in Florida. And someone that I spoke with, uh, Albert White, he is a member of the board of directors of the Lincoln High School Alumni Association, uh, which is the high school that Aquin Jones was principal of. And, you know, he said that back when he went to school at Lincoln, all of their parades went down Fifth Avenue. And he grew up, Albert White grew up in East Gainesville, and he would walk over to Fifth Avenue, and he was he would describe it as a place that, you know, everybody was dressed nice, you know, because they were keeping up with the times and the businesses were always jumping. And, you know, like he said, the girls are prettier on that side of town. The music was better on that side of town. And now it's just desolate. That was producer Melissa Fato speaking to Peyton Titus about Sarah McKnight, a black woman and business owner who was at the heart of Gainesville's jazz culture of the 1950s. We'll be right back. Explore the history and culture of our state as the Florida Historical Society presents Florida Frontiers. Discover how history impacts our lives today as we travel to historic sites from Pensacola to Key West and all points in between. From native people to Spanish settlers to cracker cowmen and beyond, we examine the diverse heritage of the Sunshine State. That's Florida Frontiers, presented by the Florida Historical Society. Sunday morning at 7.30 on WUFT 89.1-90.1. Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. Some North Central Florida counties are getting involved in the largest opioid-related legal case in U.S. history. Alachua, Marion, Gilcrest, Hernando, Levy, and Putnam counties are looking to join Florida's opioid settlement in a national lawsuit against pharmaceutical companies. Producer Sarah Mandile spoke with WUFT reporter Arlette Garcia about how this lawsuit will affect local counties. My story is about the current national opioid settlement that's going on right now against major pharmaceutical companies involved 
with the production, distribution, and advertising of opioids, and more specifically, how North Central Florida counties are trying to get some form of funds or financial relief because of the way that the opioid crisis has affected them in the region. While it hasn't been one of the most affected areas um, compared to other parts of the nation, it definitely has seen an increase in opioid-related deaths and just the opioid crisis in general. At the beginning of your article, you say how this is the largest opioid-related legal case in U.S. history. Could you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, so this lawsuit is composed of multiple different plaintiffs in the lawsuit, which include states, individuals, numerous counties, cities. It's just really anyone that decided to file a lawsuit against um, Purdue, Johnson & Johnson, and other um, opioid distributors. So really, it's the largest one because the lawsuit kind of just takes all of these different plaintiffs into account. The lawsuit that's really being focused on right now is the one with Purdue, since it's the one that appears to be finishing up the quickest. And what they're trying to prove in the lawsuit is that Purdue knowingly was complicit, I guess you can say, in prescribing more uh, painkiller pills and playing an active role and like knowing that they're playing an active role in making the opioid crisis worse. Gotcha. How did you find this story? I think as like all other student journalists, you're kind of just looking at a bunch of different like county meetings and city meetings and just like anything that you can find that's newsworthy in the area. And while I was looking at, I think it was the Alachua County Commissioner's meeting. Yeah, it was the Alachua County's Commissioner's meeting. I was looking at the agenda and like the meeting minutes and I saw that one of the things that they had mentioned is that they wanted to join or pass a resolution to join a memorandum of understanding. It's a bunch of words. And basically what that means is that they would want to join the state within the lawsuit to not have to take on the lawsuit by themselves as just like the city and instead join the state and make it a bit easier and also ensure that they can get more settlement funds that way. After um, attending the meeting, I found out that this is something way bigger and I kind of wanted to focus on how this impacts the region. Okay, how much money would Florida be getting from this lawsuit? So the money that Florida is going to be getting out of the lawsuit isn't really set in stone just yet, but there are estimates of around $1.3 billion for the state. Um, This is according to the Attorney General. It could vary between the cities and the regions if they decide to join the Memorandum of Understanding, which is joining the state in the lawsuit. Um, So right now we're looking at around $1.3 billion. What are the requirements for receiving these funds? The way that it's happening here in Florida is that the state wants cities or counties to join into an agreement that would make them be part of a state lawsuit. So the cities would be operating under certain conditions under that state lawsuit. For the regional fund, which is one of the categories of how the state lawsuit would operate for people that decide to join, aka counties, um, there's two qualifications for it, which is that the county needs to have a population of around 300,000 or more And they also need to be considered a qualified county, 
which just basically means that they have to have infrastructures in place already for people that suffer from opioid abuse or opioid abuse disorder. Um, so basically they would already have to have healthcare centers or like treatment programs or things of that nature, which most counties in the area already have it. The main issue with a lot of counties here is that uh, I believe that in North Central Florida, only a couple of counties reach that mark of 300,000. Uh, I know for sure Marion County reaches that mark of having a population of 300,000. So a lot of counties held out on signing the resolution or joining with the state because of the fact that they were like, we don't know if we're even going to be able to get that much money. The The other requirement for these funds is that it needs to go specifically towards programs that are obviously going to alleviate the opioid crisis. So as opposed to other lawsuits where a county might receive money and use it for building infrastructure or to help build schools or do whatever they might need within that county, it could only it could solely go towards fixing the opioid crisis and helping people who have been affected by this. In your article, you mentioned that the main treatment program for mental health and substance abuse in Alachua County is Meridian Behavioral Health Care. You were able to speak with a Meridian representative. What did she have to say about local opioid use? So I was able to talk to Joy Riddle, which is the Vice President of Communications at Meridian Behavioral Health Care. And the really interesting thing is that they, they're the main treatment program for Alachua County, but they also serve uh, various counties around the area. So I'm pretty sure that they uh, treat people in Marion, Levy, and other counties around Alachua. And what she was able to tell me is that it definitely has increased the amount of people that go in for treatment for opioid abuse disorders. And I believe that she told me that around this same time, which is September, October time, they were seeing 1,040 people back in like 2019. And now in 2021, it's skyrocketed up to like 1,330 people. So definitely she has told me that it's around six to eight new intakes of patients every single week that look or seek out treatment for opioid use disorders. So it's definitely something that's increasing in the area might not be as much as other areas, but definitely increasing within Alachua and North Central Florida. Also, when I was able to talk to um, Kendall Cordeau, which is um, a director of data analytics for Project Opioid, it's a nonprofit organization that centers on opioid, the opioid crisis within Florida. She was able to tell me that Florida is increasing in the amount of opioid caused deaths so for 2020, there was 3,034 opioid caused deaths, which is a 51% increase from 2019. And we were able to see this information from the Medical Examiner's Commission report. And it's definitely increasing exponentially, honestly. And it's really alarming to know that we're in one of the states where the opioid crisis is so strong. Could you see yourself doing a follow-up on this story? What are the next steps to look out for? I'd, I'd love to do a follow-up on this story once the settlement does get completed. There's not an exact date of when that would be happening. Um, we're currently looking at maybe 2022. I think it would, uh, some of my sources said that around early 2022, so in the beginning of the year, it should be finalized at least the lawsuit specifically against Purdue, which is the one that I had mentioned, is the one that they're trying to finalize first, since it's the one that would be quickest. Um, so around 2022 
is when we can see um, settlement funds be dispersed and then this phase of the lawsuit be completed. That was Sarah Mandile speaking with WUFT reporter Arlette Garcia about the largest opioid-related legal case in U.S. history. Sit tight, we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sue Wagner, host of Tell Me About It on WUFT. I speak to leaders, artists, philanthropists, and innovators to learn why and how they do what they do. That's Tell Me About It, Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. right here on WUFT. You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. Finally, we bring you a story from Lowell Correctional Institution. Lowell is a place fraught with controversy. One prisoner is working to shine a light on what she calls corruption in the system in an unusual way by making TikTok videos. Producer Ariana Aspuru spoke with WUFT reporter Katie Heisen about this woman's incredible story. So... The focus of your story is an incarcerated woman in Lowell Correctional Institution named Keiko Kopp, who was taken in on drug-related charges. What can you kind of tell me about her? Keiko's a mother of four. She grew up in Niceville in the Panhandle. She's 32. Um, she would tell you that she understands that um, she did a crime and that incarceration is the punishment for that crime. But when she arrived at Lowell, she realized in her words how corrupt the system was and how poor the conditions were, especially for the pregnant women there. So she started creating these news broadcasts that she puts onto TikTok, talking about what's going on inside the prison. Um, and the account has over 8 million views at this point. Hey, this is Kate coming from Los Seattle Prison News with the days or dark ass black coffee. So I wanted to go ahead and answer some questions. I am in prison in Florida. This is a 30 second recorded video. And is that how you came across the story? Did you find it on TikTok? I did. And I, when I realized it was Lowell, Lowell has gained a lot of attention in recent years for um, reports of abuse of the women there. Um, and I thought what she was doing was pretty remarkable. And the, the style of creating news broadcasts from inside the prison where she's incarcerated was really bold. And so I reached out to her and we started talking over the phone and emailing. And I realized that her story went a lot deeper than could fit into a 60 second TikTok. And so that's really where my reporting began. Mm -hmm. So she posted these videos on TikTok through her mother, Kathy, who posts them on her account. I think the account is called at K Live News. Tell me about some of the content she posts. You said there was a deeper story in that. What does she kind of talk about? She talks a lot about conditions inside Lowell. She describes um, sick calls as going weeks without response and the women incarcerated there caring for each other um, without receiving proper medical care. She describes a lack of um, hygiene products necessary that would help prevent sickness, things like hand soap or cleaner. Um, she says that they're not being tested for COVID even though there have been a lot of hospitalizations and deaths in Florida prisons from COVID. Mm -hmm. And going into how she got there, in December of 2020, we learned that she discovered she was pregnant. And then the January after that, she was sentenced to a minimum of three years in prison. She was first sent to Walton County Jail. 
And then there were staff arranging her medical appointments and supplemental nutrition, just like the Florida law requires for pregnant incarcerated women. How did her experience sort of change when she went to Lowell? She describes a pretty drastic change. Um, I spoke not just with Keiko, but other women who are incarcerated there now, as well as women who were previously incarcerated at Lowell. They say that the pregnant women there did not receive any supplemental nutrition until June. It was weeks before she received prenatal vitamins. And a lot of this, um, I was able to obtain copies of grievance reports she submitted. Um, complaining about these conditions and requesting proper medical care, but a lot of them were denied or returned. Mm -hmm. And bouncing off of that, tell me about some of the complications she faced during her pregnancy. So Keiko, um, when she finally did receive an ultrasound, they discovered her baby had anencephaly. That's a condition that would have already developed before she was sentenced and always ends in death of the child. Um, but Keiko wanted to do everything she could to prolong the pregnancy and give her baby a chance at surviving birth. So she declined their offer to induce early labor, which would have, have killed the baby. It's really key to understand that there's nothing that could have been done to change the outcome of anencephaly. But what's at question here is the care she received as an incarcerated pregnant woman and the care the other pregnant women are also receiving. So from your reporting, she delivered in June. And can you tell me a little bit about that experience? She describes 30 hours of very intense, painful labor with ongoing contractions. But she said the staff told her she was not in labor and it was just pressure from the water weight. So for much of what she said was her labor, she was left alone without observation. At one point, she was left in an open-doored cell by herself overnight um, with uh, bleeding and urinating on herself. Her water wasn't breaking. It was really horrific. Um, and she said, she describes it as that she lost her mind in that cell. And it was not until the next day that they checked her and ended up calling an ambulance that took her to deliver at a hospital. So the delivery did um, end in her baby's death. And before 24 hours had passed, and this is common, I'm hearing from incarcerated women that um, she was handcuffed and led back to her regular bunk without a recovery period or even being taken to medical. And did you get any response during your reporting from the Lowell Correctional Institution? Florida Department of Corrections declined to comment on Keiko's experience in particular, citing medical privacy, though they knew that she was willing to sign a HIPAA release. They did say that ensuring adequate medical care is a top priority for them. Mm -hmm. In your reporting, you spoke to multiple different uh, incarcerated women, and you also mentioned that there's little data when it comes to pregnancies among these incarcerated women. What do we know about their experience? I mean, has there been any studies of it? Do we have any data we can look at? Documentation is sparse. There are two studies that show that about three to five percent of women are pregnant when incarcerated. Because the number of incarcerated women has risen, that's an increasing number of babies carried and delivered behind bars. I think a key point to keep in mind is that Black women and women of lower socioeconomic status 
face much higher rates of incarceration, pregnancy loss, infant mortality, and maternal mortality. And there is research showing that these issues are likely connected. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to solutions, what are some of the things being talked about to bring aid or justice to these wrongfully treated incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people? It's an issue that is coming back into attention of media and of state legislators. Representative Yvonne Hayes Henson has been visiting Lowell to check on the women and trying to work with prison administration directly to get especially better nutrition as a starting point. She's also planning to propose legislation that would allow pregnant women to delay incarceration until after birth and have them at home on an electronic monitoring system of some sort. Mm -hmm. And I guess until then, what kind of happens? Is COP still posting videos on, on TikTok? The account has not posted since her mother received a letter threatening to revoke her visiting privileges if she continued. She plans to keep fighting even after she's released. She doesn't want people to think that she's complaining. She said, I understand that I committed a crime and so I was sent to prison, but what happens when the prison is the one committing the crime? What is punishment? When is it enough? That was Ariana Espuru talking to WUFT reporter Katie Heisen about one woman's TikToks from prison. Make sure to join us next Sunday, where we'll be showcasing the best stories coming out of WUFT News. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Melissa Fato, Sarah Mandile, Ariana Espiru, and me, Kristen Moorhead. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Thanks for listening.